I'm going to invite you to take the Bible that you have with you or the device that you have there and flip or push a few buttons to get to the book of Jonah right there in the middle of your Bible. It's there where we will pick up where we left off last week. We're just doing a a verse-by-verse study through the book of Jonah. I don't know about you, I, I think you're like me, that you appreciate candor and just a a person that is just very transparent and honest. And as I've been studying the book of Jonah in recent weeks, I have an appreciation that is swelling for him because it is likely Jonah that wrote the book of Jonah. And here he is offering a very transparent autobiography of his life. Uh, Another young man and I get together, and we had over the last couple of months reading a wonderful book by Pastor Charles Spurgeon, a preacher from yesteryear. It's a book entitled, A Lecture to My Students, in which he takes some time and, and speaks to young pastors. And my favorite chapter in this book is a, is a chapter called The Fainting Fits, which just speaks about all the different streams and sources of discouragement and, and depression that can come upon pastors for the various pressures that they have. And as one reads this particular chapter, it's very clear that Pastor Spurgeon is not copying and pasting his sources of information. Rather, it is something that he has lived out personally. And so you are more drawn to his heart than maybe even his content. And that's what we see here in this book of Jonah. If you're not familiar with it, last week we learned that Jonah was a prophet in the Old Testament. And, and God, here in chapter 1, verse 2, had given him some very simple instructions to arise and go to Nineveh. That's the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. Now, what might have seemed very simple in instructions was very difficult for him to carry out. Why? Because the Assyrians were a rival people. Last week, we learned that they were like terrorists. They would get prisoners and they would cut their arms and legs off. They would burn people alive. They, in order to mock the prisoners, would actually decapitate one and then make friends and family of that person walk around with their loved one's head on the top of a pole. And this preacher, this prophet said, I will not follow your instructions, God. And we find out that he actually buys a ticket for a boat, and goes in the opposite direction. And chapter 1, verse 4 tells us that in response to this, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. He was not going to allow Jonah's defiance to go unchecked. And so there was a great storm that swept over the sea and the boat that Jonah and all of the sailors were on. Now, I don't know how many of you fly. I don't fly very often. But whenever I fly, it's not unusual to have some turbulence. And when there is turbulence on that plane, I catch myself looking at the stewardess. And if they get nervous, then I get nervous. And I can't ever remember a time where they got nervous. But Jonah may have looked at the sailors, and as he looked at them, 
he found out that they were afraid. That's what it says there in verse 5. There was a cause for concern. And where is Jonah during this time? And verse 6 tells us that he was down in the belly of that ship, sleeping. The captain goes down and says, what in the world are you doing? And that's where we left off last week. So with that background in mind, let's pick it up in verse 7, and we'll read all the way to verse 16. Verse 7, And they said, that's the sailors, and they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where did you come from? And what is your country? And what people are you? And he said to them, well, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then he said to them, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more temptuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me in the sea, and the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more temptuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood for you. O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they vowed a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And Father, as we return here again to the book of Jonah, and we consider this issue of just a simple call, what I want you to do is go over and, and proclaim this message in his defiance. I think we see here the cause of that defiance, and maybe the cause of my defiance and some of our defiance here as well. Lord, help us to see our own lives the way you see them. Help us to wrestle and and get some clarity on this identity issue today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we work through this story together, I'm going to lay out before you four different truths that I think you'll see illustrated in these verses. The first truth that we see that even dips back in the last week is this. A sin committed in private will affect others in public. A sin committed in private will affect others in public. We tend to minimize sin. What harm can it really be? One act of disobedience? What trouble can that can come from that? Well, ask Adam and Eve. In their one act of disobedience, sin entered into their relationship with God and one another and into the entire human race. Fathers and husbands, we can say to ourselves, what, what, what effect could possibly come for me in my private moment right now engaging in some sin? Well, it could take the power necessary for you to be the man that God wants you to be to lead your family. 
All of us have been able to look around and see instances where leaders, whether in the arena of government, business, entertainment, ministry, or family, have said to themselves, no one's going to find out if I, if I do this, only to have their sinful acts make the front page of an internet webpage or, or the newspaper. What we do in private will not remain private. And what we see here in this passage of Scripture is what seemed to be a simple act of disobedience. God said to this preacher, what I want you to do is go to Nineveh. It seemed to be just between him and God. And Jonah said to him, no, I'm going in the opposite direction. And there were consequences not only to Jonah, but those around Jonah, namely the people within that boat. And so as he set out the sea, God brought a storm not only to Jonah's life, but also to the people around Jonah. As a church family, we are reading through the Scriptures. And we've been reading through Genesis. Now many of us are in the Job and Luke and Revelation. I remember as we were reading in Genesis, coming across Genesis 4, verse 7 where there is this warning, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. It's possible that when we think of sin, we see sin as kind of like an old hound dog. Yeah, it might make a mess, and and yeah, it might set us back some money, and yeah, it might take some sacrifices, but we can let that dog into our home. What's the big deal? But the reality is, it would be more accurate to say that sin is like a gunny sack full of poisonous snakes. And not one sane person here this morning would say, let's let that sack full of snakes be emptied out into the living room of my home, into my apartment, and let's just let them loose and let's see what happens. Why? Because it will cost you your life, and sin may cost you your soul. In the same way we would see these poisonous snakes as a threat to us, we ought to see sin as a threat to us as well. So the first thing we see is what sin does not remain in private, even if it was committed in private, but it will affect others. Let's continue looking at our passage here. In verse 7 it says, And the sailors, they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. Now what in the world is this cast lots? It's similar to us rolling the dice. Back then they had little pebbles, little rocks, and there would be something painted on one edge or etched into it, and they would roll it, and as they rolled it, they would try to get an understanding of what the gods were saying to them. So as these sailors maybe got into a big old circle or oval, one of them at a time would roll the lots or roll the dice. And there would be something that would show up and says, no, it's not you. And they'd roll another one. No, it's not you. And and they'd make their way around the circle. And when Jonah rolled the dice or cast the lots, the answer was yes. It's because of this man that we are in the midst of this storm somehow he has offended his god so we read in verse 8 tell us on whose account this evil has come upon you and here are four different questions that they are going to ask 
What is your occupation? And where did you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? What is your identity? They've come to him and say, tell us a bit about yourself, Jonah. And to listen to what he says, because this is where the message hinged this morning. Verse 9 says, And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. The first thing that Jonah says about himself is not that he is a follower of God. Rather, he identifies his nationality. I'm not an Assyrian. I'm not a Philistine. I'm not a Hittite. I'm a Hebrew. In the midst of a storm, Jonah found out what he really thought of himself and how he identified himself. He identified himself by his nationality, that he was a Hebrew. And as we see his resistance to respond to God's order for his life, I can't help but think that his identity and how he saw himself shaped his decision. So how we define ourselves shapes how we live. I I am convinced that if Jonah identified himself as a servant of God, when God came to him and says, Jonah, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go to Nineveh and proclaim this message there. He would have said, of course, I'm a servant of God. I'll do whatever you want me to do. But the first thing he identified himself as was a Hebrew. And Hebrews did not associate with Assyrians. They were rivals. They did not like one another. And so I would ask you this question this morning. How is it you identify yourself? What is your identity? It is possible that that is a difficult question for us to ask when there's not a storm blowing in our lives. I could tell you a little bit about myself. When I graduated high school, I went off to college and, and I set my life on a path. I thought, I'm going to graduate from college. I'm going to get my first career job. And then I'm going to get married. Then I'm going to buy a house. And then I'm going to have children. This is the path of which I see my life on. Oh, and I'll attend church in there as well. I'll, I'll be a Christian as well. I was living out what I thought would be the American dream. And I landed my first job. It was here in Green Bay. And then something happened. A storm blew in to help me to learn about what I really put my identity in. The storm was in that I lost my job. And I was shocked. I was stunned. And I really experienced not a midlife crisis, but an early life crisis. Because I I put my identity into my job. And suddenly I was like, who am I? And it was in God's providence that I was attending this church at that time. And God was disclosing to me, Chad, you've put your identity in your job, but I have an identity for you that I want you to learn about and I want you to live out of that identity. This can happen all around us. An athlete, and you don't have to be a professional athlete, you don't have to be a Division I athlete, but you could be a gymnast, a basketball player, a a football player, a hockey, and you 
could be that one that went to summer camps and, and you excelled and, and maybe you even got some scholarships. And what I know about athletes is that if they experience a, a career-ending surgery or an injury, that that often leads to depression. Why? Because they face an identity crisis. What about moms? Maybe your identity is, I am a mom who is going to lead Christian children. And I happen to be a Christian myself. And if your identity is in your momhood, and you are investing your life into these children, what happens if that little boy or that little girl wavers from the faith, or they grow up and they move out of your house, your identity is rocked to the core. Or what if you're a small business owner? What if you're a welder? What if you're a machinist, a nurse, or a teacher? And something like COVID comes in, and and something happens to your job, or maybe you retire You no longer have your name on the cubicle or or on that office door. And suddenly you realize your identity has been tied up to your position. Well, Jonah's identity was tied up in his nationality. He was first a Hebrew and then he was a follower of God. And a storm was sent in his life to reveal that to him where he would have an opportunity to repent and say, no, I got that backwards. I am first a servant of God. And then I just happen to be of the Israelite nation. How we define ourselves shapes how we live. Often in counseling, one is in the midst of a storm. And a person is in an identity crisis. And a discerning Christian counselor will take that person through the Scriptures to point out who their true identity in Christ is. So instead of just exploding and hammering away at you this morning and saying, you may have your identity in the wrong place, can I give you some helps? This is in your outline, four different things that we can say. If you are a Christian, if you have been forgiven of your sins, this is what the Scriptures say of you. The first is this. I am justified. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What God would want to say to you today is, you don't need to be striving and struggling to gain my acceptance or approval. It has been given to you when Jesus died in your place. Stop doing that. Rest in what I have done by sending Christ. A second way of identifying yourself is not only that am I justified, that is settled, it's I am adopted. I have a father that cares for me and and knows everything about me in despite of all of that, still loves me. And not only that, he listens to me and I listen to him and I have a relationship with him. And that's not only huge in my relationship with him, but it also means that I also have relationships with others within a family. And so the people in a local church are stuck with me and I'm stuck with them. And we all have the same Father and we're going to work through our differences. The third thing I think we see here is I am free. 
This is a part of our identity. You may have a long history of struggling with worry and and fear and, and lust and gossip and lying. But if you've truly been converted, who you are in Christ is you are free. And it is a choice to you. The the penalty and the power of sin has, has been demolished. And you can sit here and say, this is who I am. And the final one there is that you are unfinished. Philippians 1 verse 6 says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but I tend to be hard on myself. And when I fail and when I fall, I'm my worst critic. But this is a wonderful, wonderful truth for us to realize that we are unfinished. So we need to, we need to give ourselves some patience and realize, you know what? I'm not finished yet. God is still working in my heart. He is still working in my life. And it bothers me when I sin. It bothers me when I fail. But I don't want to ever make that same mistake. I don't ever want to do the same thing. May God give me the grace to change. Who are you? Could it be today, whether online or here in person, you are experiencing a storm And maybe you find yourself in some sort of an identity crisis. I appreciated that baptism last week as Miss Kia, as she was giving her testimony, spoke about, I have found my identity in Jesus. Have you found your identity in him? When someone asks you who you are, when you ask yourself who you are, are you able to say, I am first and foremost a child of God who just happens to be a welder? who just happens to be an American, who just happens to have an interest in sports. But first and foremost, what defines me is God and what God says about me. I think we can look to Jonah's story here and glean from that. I'll give you a third thing. And before we get to that, let's look at what their response was to uh, Jonah giving his identity. Look with me at verse 10. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and says, What is this you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So they asked Jonah, Who are you? He says, I'm a Hebrew and I fear. Mark that word fear. It's going to be a word that we come back to at the end of our passage. I feared the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. In response, the sailors say they are afraid. Not just afraid, but exceedingly afraid. And why is that? Because this joker, this preacher, has offended the God who made the sea. And their their greatest threat now is this God is angry with Jonah. And because he's angry with Jonah and they are on the same boat, that their lives are at stake. So they ask him in verse 11, What shall we do for you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more temptuous. Verse 12 says, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Their response, look with me at verse 13, Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. 
because they could not, for the sea grew more and more temptuous against them. Therefore they entered into prayer, in verse 14 and verse 15 it says, And they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. If Jonah were here with us this morning, and he was just offering confessions of his failures in life, he might say something like this. Even in our darkest failings, the gospel story shines through. Do you see a picture of the gospel here? We have what we call types Types of Christ, where there is a foreshadowing of a Savior that will come hundreds of years later. And ironically, in Jonah's darkest failings, he actually represents a picture of what Jesus will do hundreds of years later. And this is what he will do. The sailors are either going to experience the judgment of God or someone else substituted in their place will experience it for them. Jonah is saying, I will take the full wrath of the waves so that you don't have to. The sailors needed a substitute so that they could live. And Jonah says, I'll do it for you. And what is their response here? You'll see it in verse 13. Nevertheless, the men rode hard back to dry land. It's just to say, no, if this is the deal that you have to die so that we will live, we don't like that deal. It seems like we ought to work for our own safety, work for our own salvation. Let us try to do that. And so they rode as hard as they could, but the winds were too powerful and they couldn't get to dry land. So in order to be saved... They had to rely on one person taking the fall for all of them. By the way, this is another one of those stories where we see followers of God and we say, we have to blush here because the pagans, the pagan sailors seem to be more concerned about the welfare of Jonah than Jonah does about them. Now, we're not going to throw you in the sea. Let us roll. Let us get you there safely. And it's the pagans in verse 14 that pray to their God. And where is Jonah? Why hasn't he prayed? Why hasn't he repented? Can he see that God's trying to get his attention? And why is he going to make the sailors throw him off? Why can't he voluntarily jump off? And then we see in verse 15 that they pick up Jonah and hurl him into the sea. So I don't know if that's like four different guys, one grabbing one ankle, another one grabbing the other ankle, one grabbing a wrist, another one grabbing a wrist, and they go one, two, three. If it's in my family, I guarantee you that's the way it would be. And so they chuck him into the sea. And here's a wonderful little word that's just something that we ought to know as Christians. It's the word propitiation. And all it means is to appease or to satisfy. Jonah's rebellion brought a reaction from God. The pagan sailors were sinners too. And God's justice needed to be satisfied. And do you see what happened the moment that that Jonah splashed into the sea? You see it there in verse 15. And the sea ceased from its raging. It's like God was satisfied 
one person has taken the place of everyone else. And that is a picture of the gospel. Each of us deserve the judgment of God. And yet there has been one that has come and said, I'll take his or her place. Put the judgment upon me that they may escape the eternal storm of God's wrath. And that person was Jesus Christ as he died on the cross and raised to life three days later. Do you see this magnificent God that we worship? Even in our darkest failings, the gospel story shines through. And then I'll leave you with this one. God will do what God will do. Look with me at verse 16. What is the response of these pagan sailors? It says here in verse 16, Then the men feared the Lord. That word fear in verse 16 is the same word that is used in verse 9. The same word that is used to categorize Jonah's relationship with his God, that he worships him, is now the same word that is being used to describe the sailor's relationship with God. He fears them. These sailors worship God. The word Lord there in verse 16 is the word Yahweh. It is a personal name that denotes a personal relationship. These sailors have been converted. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Listen to this. Even when the preacher was in defiance, God brought people to himself. Last week, as we were in the first six verses of Jonah 1, I I railed on you pretty hard. Because the point, I think, was that if we are not sharing the gospel, that that can bring judgment upon our lives. I think that's what we see here in the first few verses of Jonah. But let me balance that second part now by saying, it is God that will do this work. Here you have a preacher that has missed the second opportunity. Go to Nineveh. I'm not going to Nineveh. I'm going out on this boat, and I'm going in the opposite direction. He goes in the opposite direction, and here are these pagan sailors. They've called for a prayer meeting. They're praying to their gods, but it's having no effect on the storm. Now they find out that they have a preacher among them, and he is defiant, and that is why the storm is happening. And so they pray to his God, and they see that God saves them, and now they become followers of this God, despite the quote-unquote Christian in the ship. Unless you think this is a foxhole conversion, remember, God saved these sailors after the storm, not during the storm. I think this would be a good point for us to remember. God doesn't need Jonah God doesn't need you or I. But he has given us the privilege to share in the ministry with him. As I was thinking of this passage, and I was here earlier this morning just kind of praying and working through this message, I cannot help but think of how God has broke through in my own family's life. 
you know, I stand up here and I, I do my best to look nice because I'm supposed to look presentable as a pastor, I suppose. And, but I, I think of the woman that brought the gospel into my family. She'd been divorced. She was a single mom. She lived in a trailer park in a small little town in Wisconsin. She was a bartender at the bowling alley, serving Budweiser and making Bloody Marys. And one day, as she was there in her trailer, someone came up and shared the gospel to her. And hearing that someone died in her place, Jesus, she was born again. And she happened to be a friend of the family. And it was that spark that led to a a friend becoming a Christian, a family member becoming a Christian, and that family member sharing it with me. And so we might go throughout our lives as Christians here at Highland Crest today and think, I'm just making a mess of things. And here's the point I think we can get from Jonah. God's going to do what God's going to do. And we have an invitation to participate in this mission. You get to participate in this mission. The only way we can fail is not to try. Get off the sideline. Get into the playing field and participate. A week or two ago, my wife sent me a text and says the the washing machine is broke. I have no idea what to do with the washing machine, but in our family, a family of seven, that is a major crisis. Because after a day or two, you need a snow shovel to make your way through the laundry room because the Mount Hurtler just starts building. And so I said, I don't know anything about this, but I'm going to roll up my sleeves. And I'm going to pray, and by the grace of God, let's just see what happens here. And I will say, as by the grace of God, and only by the grace of God, that we now have a washing machine that works, right? And I I can't help but think, maybe you feel overwhelmed today. Like, yes, don't you you see the mess that my life is? I'm, I'm going through a storm myself. But if there's anything that we see from this passage here of Jonah today, is that God's going to do this. He's just inviting laborers into the harvest. So come, come, come join in the laboring. You may not feel like you're qualified, but but get out there and give him what you have. And I believe you'll be surprised as how God will use you. If he can use a defiant preacher that was running in the opposite direction, could he not use a normal boy, a normal girl, a normal man, one that's in their retired years and say, Whatever I've got, I offer to you. Let's give him what we have. Let's give him all of ourselves. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for such a transparent account of this preacher. That in days of which we shade the truth, in which we put our best foot forward, we say, look at me, or or we're selective on what we share, we have a man that says, boy, did I make a mess of things. 
Here, I'm supposed to be a prophet. I'm supposed to be a, a proclaimer of this truth. And where am I? I'm running in the opposite direction. But in spite of all that, you are bringing people to yourself. You brought sailors to yourself. And you desire to continue to do that today. And so we're reminded that this call to go out and make disciples of all nations is not to be beaten over our heads, but it's an invitation to live an adventure, to experience the joy of the harvest, to experience the joy of seeing someone say, I am justified, I am adopted, I am free, and God is still working on me. May we find our true identity in you. May that shape how we respond to life. And if we're reluctant today, may you use this account to nudge us to get involved in the harvest. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What we like to do at the close of our sermon is just have a time of reflection. And if you have never trusted Christ, you've never had him as your substitute, we want to provide an invitation for you to do that at this time. We're going to just sing a simple little song and invite you to stand with me. And if you would like to trust Christ, there's certainly nothing magical about this process. It's really about saying, I am a sinner. I need to be saved. I place my faith in what Jesus has done. Save me. I want to live for you for the rest of my days. I turn from my sins. Why don't you stand with me? We'll sing a verse or two of this, and then we'll close our service with another song.